turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, is where we're going to be together this morning. If you're new here, uh, I just want you to know how grateful we are, how grateful I am that you're here. My name's Ethan. I get the great joy of being the pastor here at Central, and um, there's a, the Lord's doing all kinds of exciting things. Uh, we're baptizing in the next service. We're going to baptize our 70th person this year uh, in just about an hour. Uh, and so absolutely, man, we're excited about what the Lord is doing here. He's doing many things. And so uh, we would love for you to come and find out. Uh, and come and be a part. So as you leave, uh, you can stop at our, uh, our Next Steps banners, and there's people there who would love to put a gift in your hand. Um, and if they don't put a gift in your hand, then tell them you want a $50 bill or something like that, all right? Uh, and uh, they might have it, they might not, I don't know. Um, but Second Corinthians 9 is uh, where we're going to spend our time together this morning. We're actually going to start a paragraph this morning, and then next week we'll come back and uh, we'll finish it. But uh, maybe as you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we'll have the verses on the screen here in just a minute. But, uh, you know, hard things are hard for a reason, aren't they? Uh, and really what we know is that things worth doing typically are pretty hard. Right, things worth doing that typically aren't really easy. Now, sometimes we make life more difficult than it needs to be. Sometimes we, we make decisions and we do things and it just makes life a, a little more hard. Uh, I've got a couple of friends who they do this regularly. Their names are Billy and Chris. And Billy and Chris, uh, they like to uh, run triathlons or run, swim, bike triathlons. And I ask them, like, man, why do you do this? Do you enjoy training for it? And they say, absolutely not. I say, all right, uh, well, do you just enjoy working out for eight hours at a time while you're doing these Ironman trials? Nope, don't, don't enjoy that. Or why do you enjoy doing it? I said, because we love the way it feels when we finish. We, we love what happens when we cross the finish line that you, you can't replicate that feeling. And I tell them, like, you know what that feeling is? That's lack of oxygen to the brain, guys. Like, that's what, like, that runner's high, that's what that is, right? Uh, it's not healthy. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. Um, but they love the way it feels whenever they cross the finish line. They, they love to finish. I mean, maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe it's not running a triathlon, but maybe it's starting that really hard thing, whatever it is, and finishing it, making it all the way through. You know, typically whenever we do hard things, it requires us to sacrifice. As we look at 2 Corinthians 9 this morning, we're going to see where Paul talks about sacrifice and doing hard things, doing difficult things. And as we, we look at this passage, here's what we're going to see, that sacrificing is harder than we think, but more rewarding than we can imagine. Sacrificing, specifically sacrificing for the glory of God is harder than we think, but more rewarding than we could ever imagine. And so look with me here at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, we're just going to read these three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8. Uh, let me invite you to stand uh, with me as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious and holy and sufficient word. Uh, starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, we read this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we, we come before you grateful for who you are. Father, we are grateful for what you are doing here at Central 
Lord, we're grateful for what you have done to bring us to you. And Father, we, we pray together this morning that we would hear from you. God, we want to hear a word from you. Father, we're grateful that, that we don't have to wonder if you will speak because you have spoken. You've spoken in your word. And so, Father, help us to see, help us to know, help us to trust, help us to understand what you have said. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Now, sacrificing is harder than we think, but it's more rewarding than we can imagine. And as we look here at 2 Corinthians 9, what we're going to do is we're, we're actually going to look at, or we're going to see how Paul shows us a few key truths about what a sacrifice is. A few key truths about what goes into making a sacrifice. And the, the first one is this, that a sacrifice is always costly. A sacrifice is always costly. There's no such thing as a cheap sacrifice. By its very nature, a sacrifice is expensive. It's worthy. It is costly. And here in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, Paul's helping us to see that. He's helping us to see that this sacrifice, that it's always costly. It always costs us something. So here in verse 6, he's, he's summarizing a, a point that he has been making. If you, you look at verse 6, he says, the point is this. Now, if you were here last week, we ended in the middle of chapter 8. So we've, we've flown over a good bit of material. We, we flew over that material because we knew that here in verse 6, Paul was going to summarize his point. Uh, I was with a group of pastors this week, and, and one of them said, he was telling this story, and the story had gone pretty long, and he said, look, to make a long story short, and one of the other pastors said, brother, that long story is already long, right? Uh, it, uh, it's not getting any shorter just because you said that. Well, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, look, to make a long story short, to summarize what I'm saying here is, or to summarize what I've been saying, here's the point. And so he's calling us back to verses 1 through 5, and of chapter 9, and there he's, he's encouraged the Corinthians that their readiness, if you go back and you read chapter 8, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, and we know that the Corinthians, a year ago, before Paul wrote this letter, he'd come to them and he had told them about a financial need that the church in Jerusalem had, and man, they were ready to give. They were ready to participate in this offering. But then something happened, they lost their motivation, they, they lost their willpower to keep giving, and so in those first five verses of chapter 9, he says, look, your readiness it was an example to the Macedonians. If you remember, the Macedonians were a small and a struggling church, but they were ready to give, and in part they were ready to give because they knew the Corinthians were giving. They knew the Corinthians were going to be involved in this. And so now what he's doing is he's asking them to be a part of what they were ready to start a year ago. And so look at verse 6. He says, the point is this. And he's going to use an agricultural image here. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this is a, a picture of planting seed. If you sow seed, if you, you plant a, a sparing amount of seed, well then don't be surprised whenever your harvest isn't big. But he says whenever you, you sow a, a, a large amount of seed, whenever you sow generously, don't be surprised whenever you reap generously. I, I experienced this this summer. We, we decided that we would do this garden, and we didn't know what we could grow and what we couldn't, but we heard that, that peppers, bell peppers, were easy to grow. And so I've been eating green bell peppers every week for months at this point because we sowed bell peppers bountifully, and so now we have reaped bountifully, 
And I have ripped those little boogers right out of that garden, right? (laughs) And so what he does here is he uses this picture in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a discussion about the Corinthians giving. So what he's doing is he's applying this picture to their generosity. He's applying this picture to their sacrifice. He says the one who gives sparingly is going to see a weak return. But the one whose generosity is marked by bounty will see a bountiful return. Now, it's interesting to me that in all of this talk that Paul has given about generosity and about giving and all of these things, one of the most surprising things to me, and this is obvious, but it's nonetheless surprising, is that Paul never commands an amount. Chapters 8 and 9, he never commands an amount. He never commands a percentage. Instead, he's confident that the Lord will lead the Corinthians to give exactly what he would have them to give. His concern is much more about how they give than what they give. But Paul's concern about what they give is that it would just simply be marked by sacrifice. That they would give sacrificially. See, the one who sows bountifully goes home with a light bag of seed. The one who sows bountifully plants that seed, trusting that the Lord is going to cause that seed to grow. But the one who sows sparingly comes home with a full bag. See, throughout this chapter and the chapter before, what Paul has done is he's, he's called us, and we've, we've used this phrase before, he, he's calling us to gospel-fueled or grace-fueled giving. He says, look, you should sow the way, you should give the way that God gives. And understand this, there is nothing cheap about our God. When our God gives, He he gives lavishly. He gives bountifully. He, He gives abundantly. When our God gives us the grace that we need, he doesn't stop and say, I wonder how they're going to use this. He he doesn't say, well, you've been in this position before. How how are you going to make sure that you don't end up back in it? He doesn't doesn't say, but you haven't earned it, so I'm I'm not going to give it to you. No, when we need grace, our God gives us grace. He gives it bountifully. He gives it generously. He gives it liberally. He he gives us the grace that we need. And what Paul says here, he says, when we give like this, we reap bountifully. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, I'm convinced that this is one of the most abused verses in the Bible. That people will take this verse... And maybe it's a preacher on TV or something like that, and they'll say, look, if you just sow a seed, it's going to come to you tenfold. If you just sow a seed, it's gonna, you're going to get this. You're going to be happy and healthy and wealthy. The problem is the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. This, this verse is not saying that if you, if you give, then you are guaranteed a financial return on what you give. This verse is not saying that if you, if you would just give enough, then you would be blessed beyond measure with things and possessions and all of that. 
No, what, what this verse is saying is that this reaping bountifully, this is not simply or merely about monetary return. It's about something far greater. It's about deeply felt communion with God. It's about deeply experienced communion with God. Maybe you're familiar with the widow and her two mites. And she gives her two mites, she gives all that she has. As far as we know, she, she didn't get four mites back. She, she didn't get a bunch of money back, but you know what she got? She got Jesus. She got deeply felt, deeply experienced communion with Jesus. She got something that money cannot buy. Right? Your money cannot buy you a standing before God. You, your money cannot buy you righteousness. Your, your money cannot buy you blessing. Your money cannot buy you anything from the kingdom of God. But you know what your money can do? Your money can be used as a tool of worship. It can be freed to say, Jesus, you are better than this. You're better than that. You know, money is a strange thing, isn't it? It grabs hold of us like not many other things do. I think in many ways, this is why people get nervous when churches start talking about money. They get nervous because there have been so many pastors, there have been so many churches that, that are really less pastor and more charlatan right? More just slimy and crooked and, and all of those things. But I also think that one of the reasons people get nervous when churches talk about money is because when we talk about money, two gods collide. See, money is a really terrible god to be worshipped, but it's a really good tool to use. But money has this tendency to become a god in our lives, to be the place where we're looking for security, we're looking for hope, and we're looking for happiness, so what happens is whenever we start talking about money, when we bring God into the equation, then the God of heaven and the false God of money, they collide. And when two gods collide, sparks fly. But when two gods collide, things get nervous because when two gods collide, one God must die. That's why Jesus says you cannot worship both God and money. Now Paul is teaching us here that whenever we're generous... We get a deeper fellowship with God because when we're generous, we're acknowledging that He is better than everything else. He's better than our money. He's better than our possessions. He's more satisfying. He's more fulfilling. He is greater than fill in the blank. And see, when we do that, what happens is God blesses us. He blesses us with a greater experience of Himself. He blesses us with a, with a greater experience and a, a greater understanding of His grace. And this kind of experience, this kind of understanding, it's always costly. It costs God His Son, and it costs us our lives. See, a sacrifice is always costly, but, but next we see this, that a sacrifice is never forced. A, a sacrifice is never forced. He's showing here this other facet of sacrifice, that it's voluntary. See, a forced sacrifice is a payment. A real sacrifice is voluntary. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, 
Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Once again, he doesn't command an amount here. He, he could have appealed to the Old Testament. Right? He could have gone to the Old Testament and he could have said, you must give 10%. You know God's word. You know what the Old Testament says. You must give 10%. You, you must give a tithe. He could have said, look, I'm an apostle. You, you, you must give this. Instead, look at what he tells us. He says it's a matter of the heart. That generosity and sacrifice that are acceptable to God flow from a heart of joy rather than a heart of duty. It views sacrificial giving as an opportunity rather than as an obligation. Look at the middle of verse 7. He says, you don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Literally, uh, under obligation from pressure that is from the outside. That a real sacrifice, that it's never forced, but it's done freely. Calvin said this, he said, no sacrifice is pleasing to God if it is not voluntary. See, when we're shaped by the gospel, sacrificial generosity isn't forced out of us. Instead, it's an indicator of a gospel-shaped life. Maybe you've wondered, am I being shaped by Jesus? Is it, am I becoming more like Jesus? Well, there are questions you can ask. Right? Do, you, do you hate sin and love holiness more? Do you, do you love the Bible? Do you love to pray? Do you, do you love to commune with the Lord? I think one of the questions is, are you increasingly generous? See, when, when Jesus impacts your life, you begin to look different. November 1st is coming soon. So you know what that means. Christmas is here, right? Christmas is upon us. And one of the things that, that uh, we like to do, or my wife likes to do, she likes to make Christmas cookies. I like to eat the Christmas cookies. Sometimes I'll, I'll get in and I'll, I'll help make these cookies with her and, and our kids. And we roll out the dough and we get our, our cookie cutters, right? We get our, we get our shapes. And we get the, the star. We start cutting out star cookies. We get the Christmas tree. We start cutting out Christmas tree cookies. This never happened. I've never taken that star cookie cutter and pushed it onto that cookie dough. And when I pick it up, had a Christmas tree laying there. I've never taken a Christmas tree cookie cutter and, and pushed it on the cookie dough and pulled it up and had an elephant or a giraffe. Now, you know, you know what happens whenever the Christmas tree cookie dough cutter meets the cookie dough, the cookie dough looks like a Christmas tree. You know what happens when Jesus Christ hits your life? Your life looks like Jesus. You become like Jesus. You become more and more conformed in, cut into the image of Jesus. That When, when Jesus hits our lives, he, he makes us into his image and he, he does away with everything else that doesn't look like Jesus. In verse 7, look at, look at how Paul describes the one who's been shaped by Jesus. At the end of verse 7, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. The one who gives freely, that kind of giver is cheerful. That's the kind of giver that God loves. Now, where does this cheer come from? Well, it comes from delight in God. We give cheerfully when we are acutely 
and keenly aware of God's grace to us. See, this is the kind of giver that God is looking for me to be. This is the kind of giver that God is looking for you to be. This is the kind of giver that God is looking for us to be. This, this is the kind of giver that he loves. He, he loves this kind of giving because it reflects contentment with what God has given us and, and how he has called us to steward it. I wonder if you would say that your life is marked by contentment. If I'm honest with you, so oftentimes my life is not marked by contentment. So oftentimes my life is marked by want. It's not marked by need. Understand that. It's marked by want. Man, I want that. If I had that, I'd be happy. If I had that, I'd be cheerful. If I had that, then this would happen and that would happen. Maybe what, what Paul is saying here is that the path to joy, the path to cheerfulness, is not about what you can get, but it's about what you can give. It's about how generous we can be. Another reason that God loves this kind of giver is because his generous heart is reflected in our generosity. In other words, when we give cheerfully, we look like him. A stingy Christian is a walking contradiction because we've received much. We, we should be, we must be, we are the first to give much. Because when we stop and we realize, we recognize everything that God has given to us, everything that we have, the reason that you and I are breathing right now is God's grace. The reason the, your heart is beating inside of your chest is God's grace. And maybe a pacemaker, but God's grace. Right? The, the reason that you woke up this morning is God's grace. When we recognize how gracious God has been to us, how generous God has been to us, we, we can't help but to be generous in the same way. See, a sacrifice is always costly, and a sacrifice is never forced. And then finally, we see this, that a sacrifice is always worth it. A sacrifice is always worth it. Worth it. See, sacrifices happen when something greater is on the other side. Now, that doesn't make it easy, but what it does is it makes it worth it. Verse 8, we, we see this why of sacrifice. Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Well, what's the why of sacrifice? Well, that God is able to do more than we can imagine. He's able to make all grace abound to us because that's the very nature of God. Do you understand the nature of God? God's nature is that he is a giving God. His nature is a giving nature. One of the, the neglected attributes of God, one of the, the ne neglected characteristics of God is the generosity of God. That our God is a generous God that he is giving. It's just what he does. It's who he is. This, this week, I, I had the opportunity to see something that I had never, never seen before, experienced something I had never seen before. I, I got to see uh, bird dogs uh, hunt pheasants. We, we were out in this field, and, and they let these dogs go. And if you've never seen it, it's really something really cool to experience. These, these dogs, they, 
they get out and they just go. They go and they start working their way through these fields. Whenever they find where a pheasant is, they stop and they point. Nothing's going to move them. Nothing, nothing's going to change them. They just stop and they point. Now, what's interesting is that whenever these, these pointer dogs, whenever they see one dog pointing, these other dogs will come up and they will point in the same direction. They might not know where the bird is. They might not smell the bird or sense the bird. But what they do, it's called an honor point. And so they will they'll point together. And those dogs do not move until the bird moves. And once the bird moves, then they react. They, they move. Jeff, the guy that, that owned the dogs, he, he and I, we were riding together. And I, I asked him, I said, Jeff, how, how long did it take to train these dogs to do that? He said, to do what? I said, to point like that. He said, oh, you, you don't train dogs to point. He said, you, you, train, you train these dogs to sit. You train these dogs to stay. He said, the hardest thing to do is to train these dogs to retrieve. He said, every dog wants to play fetch. But whenever they bring the bird back, you don't throw the bird, right? So they, they, they just have to know what it means to retrieve the bird. But he said, the, the point? He said, you don't teach that. That's just their nature. That's just what they do. That's what these dogs were created to do. They exist to point. It's who they are. You, you realize who our God is? is a generous God. He, he gives lavishly and abundantly. He, he does more than we could ask, more than we could think more than we could imagine. And our God didn't have to learn how to be generous. No one had to teach him how to do it. He's not generous in response to us. No, he's generous because he is good and because he's kind and because he's giving. We see his generous heart here in verse 9 or verse 8. If you look at verse 8, and if you read it slowly, then there's a word that will pop out. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every or all good works. He says, we have it all, all grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, every good work. Now, we see that the way that verse 7 and verse 8 are connected is through that first word in verse 8, and. So verse 7 is connected to verse 8, and God loving a cheerful giver with that word, and. When you take it with these all statements, we learn this, that the one who practices cheerful giving will always have what they need when they need it. Not only that, but God works in us through our giving so that we are strengthened to do every good work as we rely on him. See that at the end of verse 8? He says, so that you may abound in every good work. Well, what do we need to abound in every good work? Well, to abound in every good work, we need God who gives us grace. We need God who makes us sufficient. See, our God gives us empowering grace to live as he has called us to live. I think most Christians want to be obedient. 
Most Christians want to obey God. I've, I've yet to meet the Christian that says, I'm just not interested in obeying God. And if that's you, then you're probably not a Christian. Right? They, they, we want to obey. We want to follow God's will. We want to follow God's word. And yet, here's the thing. If we're honest, we struggle to be obedient. If I'm honest, I, I struggle to be obedient. There are so many times where I know what I should do and I don't do it. James says, for those of you who know what to do and don't do it, then that is sin. Right? I can identify with Paul in Romans, uh, Romans 6 and Romans 7 where he says, what I want to do, I do not do, and what I do not want to do, I do. A wretched man that I am, who, who can deliver me from this body of flesh? Why is it that we struggle with obedience? I think it's this. That we try to do it in our own strength instead of allowing God's grace to work in us. That, that we, try to, we try to be obedient on our own rather than trusting that, that as we experience God's grace and as we respond to God's grace, what God's going to do is he's going to empower us to live obediently. We can think of it like this, that our obedience, the reason that we struggle with it is because too oftentimes our obedience flows from duty rather than worship. In other words, that, that we try to be obedient because we have to, not because we get to. And here, what Paul's doing is he's inviting us to experience God's grace that empowers our lives. And when we experience God's grace that empowers obedience, then here's what happens. Our thinking about obedience transfers, it moves from something that I have to do to something that I get to do. It moves from this thing that I have to check off on my list to this thing that, that I get to do and that I, I want to do because as I do that, I'm doing it in response to God who has loved me. I'm doing it in response to God who has been gracious to me. And as I do it, I'm getting more fellowship with him. I'm getting more fellowship with God because of his grace that is at work in us. I'm getting more fellowship with God, not because of what I've done. I'm getting more fellowship with God because I'm experiencing more of his grace. And as I experience more of his grace, what happens is, is I hate sin and I love holiness more. As I experience more of God's grace, I, I, I hate these things that I shouldn't do and I love him more. As I experience God's grace more than what the song says is that the things of the world grow strangely dim. That's, that's what this empowering grace looks like. See, this sacrificing, it's harder than we think, but it's, it's more rewarding than we can imagine. One of the things that we learn here in 2 Corinthians, we, I think we learn this actually throughout the New Testament. I think in almost every letter we see this. God wants to do incredible and wonderful and amazing things in and through his church. Through his big capital C church. But I think he also wants to do wonderful, incredible things through local churches. That's what Paul's writing to these Corinthians, and he's inviting them. He's inviting them to be a part of what the Lord wants to do through them in the world. That's really what Imagine is all about. This Imagine initiative. It's all about us imagining how the Lord would use our church to do incredible things as we sacrifice together. Imagine is our opportunity to commit together 
and to commit individually, to be a people who sacrifice for the glory of God. I've got something I want to share with you. And next Sunday, you heard us talk about this. Next Sunday is our Commitment Sunday. So we're going to get to come together as a church. We're going to get to make the commitment that the Lord is leading us to make. You're going to get to make the commitment the Lord is leading you to make. And how you're going to be involved with the Imagine Initiative. And so over the last several months, really, We've been praying, and we've been meeting, we've been dreaming, we've been praying some more, and we've been praying a little bit more, and we've, we've been praying a little bit more. And so we, we started having people say, well, well we want to commit early. We, we want to make an advanced commitment. So 100% of our church staff has already, already made a commitment. But many of our other leaders have already made a commitment. In fact... Just over the last few weeks, 36 households, 36 families have already made their commitment. Now, let me tell you why this is exciting. Out of those 36 households that have made a commitment, the average increase in giving, the average increase in their commitment over the next two years is 54%. That's incredible. That's, That's exciting. What's also exciting is these 36 families have made their commitments, and through their commitments, our primary goal is 100% participation, right? Our primary goal is that all of our church, everyone who calls Central Home, that we would participate, that we would be engaged in Imagine. We've got this secondary goal of of $7.2 million. Well, through those 36 families that have gone first, uh, we are at 54% of our goal. 54% of the, the commitments that we we need to, to make imagine a reality. Means that we are already over halfway there and we've yet to have Commitment Sunday. And that's worth celebrating. Uh, that's, that's worth getting excited about. And, and that's worth getting excited about because what that is, is that is God's empowering grace working in His people, working in us. I want you to know just how excited and committed I am and so many in our leadership are to the Imagine Initiative. And we, we think that this is huge. This is a game changer for the life of our church. This is a game changer for untold numbers of people whose lives will be impacted is we... We support more missionaries and their work around the world. Is we support more church planners around the world. Is is we we make more room for more kids and more students and more adults and more aunts and more uncles and more moms and more dads and more grandmas and grandpas right here at Central. One of the things that I've been so encouraged by is that our our small groups have been uh, they've been doing sermon discussion over the last several weeks. They've been discussing not so much the sermon as much as the passage that we're walking through. And every week since we've started this, I've had a conversation with different people who have said, man, this, uh, we're having such great discussions. And we the, were able to apply God's word a little more clearly. We're, 
We're being challenged. We're being fed. We're, we're being encouraged. I'm, I'm encouraged by all that the Lord is already doing through the Imagine Initiative. And, and I, I hope you are as well. And, and I hope that you, you'll commit to being involved with the Imagine Initiative. You'll commit first to praying. You'll pray that the Lord would use this. He would use it to, to make His name famous all around the world. You know, we, we've, got, we've got these commitment cards. And I, I hope that you've got a commitment card. And I hope that you're praying over it and you are thinking about it. This, this commitment card, this, this isn't for me. Your commitment card isn't for anyone on our staff. It's not for any of our leadership. Your commitment card is between you and the Lord. It's for you and the Lord. For, for many of us, man, we want to be more generous. We want to be generous people. We might even say, I've got a dream of being more generous. One of the things I've, I've learned over the, the last few years is that a dream without a plan is a nightmare. Right? That, that, that a, a dream without a plan and a, a dream without a goal, isn't, it's not going to take you very far. And so what this is, is this is simply a goal. It's a plan for how you can respond to how the Lord would work and how the Lord would, would move and how He is moving in your heart and in your life. One of my favorite things about this card is actually it's on the back of the card. On the back of the card, there's a, a chart there. And what that chart does is it, it shows a realistic way that, that we could hit our goal. It's not necessarily the way, but it's a realistic way that we could hit this goal. And one of the things I love about it is it shows, it proves that it takes all kinds of people to do all of God's work. It, it takes all kinds of generosity to do all of God's work. They, some, of, some of you here, you're saying, Ethan, I've, I've never given to a church before. I've, I've never, never given. Man, this is, this is a great opportunity for you to start, to be involved in this. Some of you, you'd say, Ethan, I'm giving as much as I can. Man, here's what I want you to know. Like, the Lord is pleased with that. God, God is, he's pleased. We saw last week, that is acceptable. Acceptable in all of the good ways, all of the right ways. For, for some of you, maybe you say, Ethan, I'm already giving, but I can give more. Well, this is an opportunity to do just that. Here, here's my fear. Maybe you've heard of FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, my fear is that years from now, we're going to look back on the Imagine Initiative, and we're going to see all that the Lord did and all that the Lord is continuing to do. And for some of us, we're going to look back, and we're going to see all that the Lord did and all that the Lord was doing, and we're going to think, I wish I would have been involved. And don't, don't, let that, don't let that be you. God is going to do great things in you and through you. He's going to do great things in us and through us as a church. And this is a great opportunity uh, for us to be involved. But, but here's, here's what you need to know as well. If you've never trusted Christ, then, then you cannot be a sacrificially generous person. Because real sacrifice, true sacrifice, was displayed, it's seen on the cross of Calvary. That on the cross, Jesus... Jesus took the penalty for our sin. He sacrificed himself. He went willingly. He, he sacrificed himself so that we could be forgiven and we could be made right with him. And so if you've never trusted in Christ to save you, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to know. This commitment card, this is not for you. 
Man, what Jesus is calling you to do, what he's inviting you to do, is to trust in him. It's to give your life to him, to give your, your heart to him, to give your, your hope in him. And as you do that, he saves you and he forgives you. He gives you eternal life and he, he gives you fellowship with him. So yeah, I think that every time we read the Bible, every time we hear the Bible taught, every time we hear the Bible preached, the Bible demands a response. It means that we would apply God's word. And so next week, the way that our response is going to look is we're going we're gonna to make our commitments together. But maybe this morning, your response to God's word in your life is that you need to trust Christ. That you need to put your hope in Him. We're going to sing. We, we sing in response to God's word here. And at the end of the service, our, we're going to have a response team. Our next steps team will be down front. And they, they would love to talk with you and, and pray with you about what does it mean? What does it look like to follow Jesus? You can go out those doors, and on the right, you'll see our Next Steps banners. You'll see people walking around in yellow shirts that say hello. Those people love to talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus. But I hope you won't let this moment pass by without trusting him. He's inviting you to do it. Won't you do it now? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that that has saved us. Father, I pray this morning that we would, you would make us into gospel-shaped people. Lord, I pray this morning that you you would work in us. You would conform us into the perfect image of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.